Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54. Hear now the word of our God from Isaiah chapter 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the waters of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So have I sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord." This is the word of our God. If you remember, Isaiah 38 began with the sickness of Hezekiah. The house of David is mortally stricken. Babylon is coming, and the Babylonians will carry away the sons of David into exile. So when Isaiah is preaching this, the people of God are seeing very much coming down the pike, the end of all that they love and hold dear. So Isaiah had begun in chapter 40 to speak of the comfort that would come. And chapters 41 to 48 spoke of of the restoration from exile, as God promised that he would redeem Israel, his servant. God would raise up a great king to deliver his people. 
No, no, not, not the son of David. But the godless pagan Cyrus. Because as Isaiah 48 concluded, Israel, my servant, is no better than the nations. Israel is blind and does not see. Israel is deaf and does not hear. Indeed, when Israel is restored from exile, they will be no better than before. The restoration will fail because the sin of my people has never been dealt with. And so chapters 49 to 55 are speaking of the singular servant who will redeem servant Israel. The one man who will arise to bear the sins of many as the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Chapters 54 and 55 provide a a fitting conclusion to this message because when God reveals the promise of a suffering singular servant who will finally deal with sin, what should be the response? But great joy. The singular suffering servant has accomplished salvation and so now the servants respond to what the servant has done. Now this response takes two parts, so tonight we'll talk about the enlarging of the tent of Zion, and then chapter 55 we'll talk about who will dwell in that tent. So tonight we focus on the enlarging of the tent of Zion, the bride redeemed, the city restored. Now, um, in, in Hebrew poetry, there's usually this sort of parallelism that uses different words with similar meanings. So... We saw this last chapter, chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Bearing grief, carrying sorrow. Similar ideas. It's sort of, it, it can be sometimes a, a, a parallelism of sort of A, what's, a, what's more B, sort of similar things being said. But in chapter 54, and also in chapter 55, Isaiah will use the same word repeated over and over again. So, for instance, chapter 54, verse 1, sing, singing, children, children, or verse 9, swore, sworn, verse 10, depart, removed, depart, removed, verse 13, children, children, 15, strife, strife, 16, created, I created. So there's this, this repetition of the word, the same word, being used over and over again, which is rather rare in Hebrew poetry. And Isaiah uses these sorts of things in order to signal that he's coming to a transition. He's coming to a conclusion. Uh, and that's uh, something that Isaiah 40 had spoken of, done something similar when it said, comfort, comfort, using the same word twice. So there's a way in which, as we come now to the end of the section, Isaiah is using the same re- repetition theme to signal to us, I'm now drawing this conclusion. I'm speaking now the comfort that I had promised at the beginning of the section. But chapter 54 is now the the, the call for the barren one to sing. Now, Zion is not named here in chapter 54, but the imagery by now is so familiar that there's no doubt that Zion is the one to whom Isaiah is speaking. In chapter 50, God had spoken of the exile as a divorce, that he had divorced Zion and sent her into exile. And in chapter 51, Isaiah drew attention to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who bore you. And so when you think about the barren wife, the one who was mocked by her slave, Hagar, because she had no sons for her husband, this Sarah is the one that Zion is supposed to remember. 
Because what did God do for barren Sarah? He turned her barrenness into fertility, and from her emptiness came forth nations. Now the emptiness of Zion will be filled to overflowing, for the, the many of chapter 52 and 53 that, that the servant would redeem are now the many sons of the barren, that as many were astonished at you, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Yet he bore the sin of many. These many are now referred to here as the children of the desolate one will be many than the children of her who is married. That We translate it more because it's, it's used comparatively, but in Hebrew it's the same word. The many for whom the servant atones are the many children of Zion. And likewise, the offspring that we just heard about in chapter 53, that he shall see his offspring, are the offspring of Zion, who now your offspring will possess the nations. Think back. In chapter 51, verse 20, the sons of Zion, where were the sons of Zion? Passed out drunk in the streets. But when the servant bears the iniquities of his people... Then the offspring of Zion will populate the city once again. Indeed, Zion will prove to be too small. She must enlarge the place of of her tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. The borders of Zion must be extended to the left and to the right so that your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Notice that, again, Zion cannot be equated simply with Jerusalem. It's not that the the, the physical city of Jerusalem is going to just keep expanding and expanding. No, Isaiah is teaching the people of God to see that Zion is bigger than Jerusalem. That Jerusalem is a picture of Zion. That the heavenly city is the city of, that's the city of God. And this is the city that will expand and expand until it fills the whole earth. And Isaiah speaks of the day when the city of God will expand through the nations. And he uses the image of a tent. He did this before in Isaiah 16, verse 5. He spoke of how a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Likewise, in Isaiah 33, Zion was called an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up. And now that tent is going to be expanded. And if you think back for the Israelites, every year they would have celebrated the Feast of Booths when all Israel lived in tents for a week. The Feast of Booths reminded Israel of how God had provided for them in the wilderness and also reminded them that they were temporary sojourners in the land God was teaching his people that their true home was a city built without hands, a tent whose builder is God. So, in this context, you can then see that in all of this, God's purpose in the salvation of Zion is to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth, that what he had promised Abraham, that through Abraham the nations would be blessed, This is now what God is beginning to do. And and you can also see that that what has has Zion done to do all this, to accomplish this, to give... Notice how 
Isaiah says it. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. That Zion will give birth, uh, Isaiah will use this image later on, Isaiah, uh, Zion will give birth to a nation in a day. That without being in labor, basically it's, it's this, this idea of this, this remarkable expansion of the kingdom of God that wasn't brought about by Zion. Because God is the one who saves. Only God can save. Salvation is the work of God, the work of his servant. And as we've seen, servant Israel has fallen short and failed. Zion has not brought about the salvation that was promised. And then the second call to Zion is found in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Now, okay, how is Zion a widow? Usually in order to be a widow, your husband needs to die. So how is Zion a widow? Well, um, the term used for a widow is... uh, one who is, is desolate. And the term is actually used both to refer to widows, usually it refers to widows, it can also refer to divorcees, those, particularly when the person has been divorced for their own fault. And so God had divorced Zion. She had been put away and disgraced through her own wicked acts. So her widowhood refers to her being divorced. Actually, a similar use is found in 2 Samuel 20, where David returns to Jerusalem after the rebellion and death of Absalom. David had left ten concubines in Jerusalem to keep the house, and Absalom had slept with them openly in front of the whole city as a sign of his rebellion, sleeping with his father's concubine. The, the, the idea was that if you, if you sleep with the king's concubine, you are basically claiming to be the king. And when David returned, he did not take the concubines back as his wives. They rather lived in widowhood. Their husband wasn't dead. David was quite alive, thank you. But they were, in a sense, divorced. It was, you know, the, the law forbade a man to go into a woman who had slept with his father. So that's where you know, Absalom had sinned, had, had, had sinned against God and his father uh, by, by sleeping with his father's concubines. Uh, And so it was improper for David then to take them back. And since David was the king, it was impossible for any of these women to marry another because the king is practically, you might say, the father of his country. So any man who would take the king's concubine would be basically... So they have no option but to... As David, they live in widowhood as in 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 their own homes. So, but here in this passage, this use of, of widow is highlighting that basic idea of, of the widow in Hebrew literature, namely one who is desolate. And particularly, you know, Zion was desolate. Her, her children were in all, all in exile and her, 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 her husband had sent her away. 
But now, God says, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Think about how those images fit together. Your maker is your husband. You are like a a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. Wife of youth refers to one's first marriage. And the prophets often refer to Zion as God's bride. That she is God's beloved. But then God says, for a brief moment, I deserted you. What does he mean, I deserted you? Think back to what Isaiah has said. Israel's rebellion, their persistent turning away from the Lord. And yes, God says, in my overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. Yes, for a moment I deserted you because God is holy and he cannot allow sin and rebellion to flourish. And therefore, he allows Jerusalem's sin to result in Jerusalem's misery. He casts them off so that they can taste the true flavor of their rebellion. But that's not where the story ends. The the divorce that God, where God sends her away, God also brings them back and restores them. They have provoked him over and over with their idolatry and rebellion. And yet, now God speaks tenderly to Zion. He loves her with an everlasting love that cannot be destroyed. Not even by her spiteful behavior toward him. Because... His purpose is to bring her back and show compassion. Indeed, God says, this is like the waters of Noah to me. Uh, the, the ESV makes, notes that uh, the, it, could, it could mean waters of or days of. It's all in the vowel pointing. Uh, but since Isaiah is using so many doubled words in this passage, I think he's saying, this is like the waters of Noah. Because think about, think about what God did in the flood. I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. Even so, I have sworn I will not be angry with you again. Think about what God's saying here. In the flood, he brought judgment against humanity for their sin and wickedness, yet saved Noah and his family through the waters of judgment. And after the flood, God made a covenant. He swore an oath that he would never again destroy the earth by water. And so now God promises He will never again exile his people. He will never again be angry with his people and send them away. And he says, just, you know, we all teach our children the story of Noah. Every time you see the rainbow, every time you see the rainbow, you remember that God has promised he will never again destroy the earth with water. And when when you see the cross of Jesus you are reminded that never again will God send his people into exile. Because the never again is connected to Isaiah 53, the singular suffering servant. When the singular suffering servant bears the sin and shame of God's people, then 
God will never again forsake his people. And how firm are God's promises? Verse 10. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. You ever seen a mountain go for a walk? You ever seen a hill just sort of like disappear? Okay, obviously a big enough bomb might be able to make, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking, can a mountain just disappear? No. Mountains don't get up and walk away. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Zion had broken her marriage covenant. The adulterous, idolatrous bride had scorned her husband, her maker. But God says that his covenant of peace shall not be removed. He will deliver his bride at whatever cost to himself. Because the Lord has compassion on his people. Chapter 54 concludes with God's comfort to his city in verses 11 to 17. Isaiah had begun in chapter 40, Comfort, comfort ye my people. And while Isaiah 52 and 53 have promised that the comfort will come, it's still in the future. And so Isaiah speaks to the afflicted one, storm-tossed, and not comforted. He speaks to, to Jerusalem as she was in Isaiah's day, and indeed for centuries after Isaiah's day. Afflicted one, storm-tossed, and not comforted. And he's, there are two beholds that, le- that structure this section. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. This will be the beauty of my city. The glory of Zion is seen in the craftsmanship of Yahweh. He is the master craftsman who reveals his skill in this ornate city. This is the city that John sees in Revelation, the bride of the Lamb. God is going to make his city, his bride, beautiful. And he is skilled in word as well as in hand. While his hand builds the city, his word teaches the children of the city. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Think back to Solomon. Solomon had built the temple. Solomon had taught wisdom and given Israel peace. Yahweh declares that he is the true king, the one who builds his holy city, teaches his people wisdom, and gives to his children peace. He will establish Zion in righteousness. In righteousness, verse 14, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Zion is the protected city. Revelation 12 speaks of this. The woman who is protected from all the assaults of the dragon. The heavenly Jerusalem will be safe from all oppression and fear. Your mother is safe. If you think back to Revelation 12 and what Revelation 12 is doing, Revelation 12 is saying, because at the end of Revelation 12 it says the dragon goes off to make war against her children, because John's telling us, Yeah, sure, Satan and his minions are trying to make your lives miserable right now. 
But don't be afraid. Your mother is safe. The heavenly city is secure and unassailable. And because your citizenship is in that heavenly city, therefore you are safe. Oh, your experience is going to be kind of rocky. You're going to have all sorts of ups and downs. But nothing like what happened to Jerusalem. Because what happened to Jerusalem was the people of God were sent into exile. God's presence was removed from them. God's presence was removed from them. Ezekiel sees that vision of of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. God's presence is gone and they will be wandering alone in exile. And Isaiah says, that's not going to happen in the future. That when the suffering servant comes, God will never again abandon His people. You will never again be alone. The city of God will be secure. And you can live as citizens of that city no matter where you are, no matter what may be happening around you. You live with the confidence of that heavenly city. Think of how the apostles embody this. Because the apostles go about... I mean, we heard about this actually in, in our New Testament lesson from this morning when Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 is, is talking about all of the sufferings and afflictions he goes through. And yet he sounds rather cheerful as he's talking about this. Because he has his eyes firmly fixed on the heavenly city that he knows his mother is secure because there is no way that this story ends badly. And so God assures us if if anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Notice how God says this. Don't be afraid of the strife around you. The people who stir up strife with you shall fall because of you. Because you are citizens of my heavenly city. You are my people. If anyone tries to mess with God's holy city, with God's holy people, they will fall. And verses 16 and 17 explain why. Here's the second behold. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fires of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. The very craft that humans use to forge weapons is given by God. It's simply human imitation of the maker. And for that matter, I have also created the ravager to destroy. God made the smith. God made the ravager. Both the one who makes the weapons and the one who uses the weapons are created by God and are under his sovereign will. Therefore, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. After all, what can they attack you with? They can only attack you with the stuff that God made. God is the one who made the stuff. God is the one who made them. All the wisdom they've ever concocted in their lifetimes, they got because it was God's to begin with. So therefore, when they try to fashion weapons against you, they're trying to use God's stuff against God's people 
And that never ends well for them. Now, the word succeed is the same word that Isaiah had just used in chapter 53, verse 10, when it says that the will of the Lord shall prosper in the suffering servant's hand. The singular suffering servant will prosper. He will succeed. But no weapon fashioned against you will prosper. It's why you can have confidence in the face of the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because they're using borrowed capital. They can only use the things that God made in their attacks. But Jesus, the singular suffering servant, is the one who prospers. And therefore, those who trust in him will prosper with him. And God also says, you shall refute every tongue that arises against you in judgment. Because you, the people of God, will learn wisdom from the word of God. And therefore, you will turn aside every tongue that speaks against them. It's why Jesus says to his disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say in that hour. Because when you stand before kings and princes, when you stand before those who would destroy you, God will give them the words to speak in that hour. It's, that's, that's not saying, therefore, don't study, don't be, pay attention. to No, do all your study. Do all your, you should be seeking to know the word of God inside and out because that's, that's where we, everything else comes from. But, but don't worry about what to say in that hour because the very God who made you and made them is the one who will give you the words to speak in that hour. The sword of the Spirit, the word of God, will foil every attack. And this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. All through these last 12 chapters, the focus has been on the servant singular. This is the only reference to plural servants. But this is because Isaiah had started with the idea, okay, Israel my servant. But as we saw, Israel my servant has failed to, to be the servant. Israel, my servant, is blind and does not see what God is doing. Israel, my servant, is deaf and does not hear what God is saying. And so we saw the distinction between the, the ser- servant Israel, who has failed to be what God called Israel to be, and now we've seen so clearly the singular suffering servant who succeeds where Israel, my servant, had failed. And so now Isaiah says, to, to in a sense make the distinction clear, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Because the servants of the Lord are those who who have put their trust in the singular suffering servant. Because the singular servant has accomplished his task, he has received his inheritance, which he now shares with the servants. Because Jesus has, has done what we could not do for ourselves. Because he was pierced for our transgressions. Because he bore our griefs. Therefore, we receive the inheritance of the singular servant because he is the one who divides a portion with the many. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication. This is their righteousness from me. Uh, The word vindication is the word righteousness. And what Isaiah is saying is that our righteousness does not come from ourselves. Our righteousness comes from the Lord. Because Jesus is the singular suffering servant who, as 53.11 had said, by his knowledge makes the many to be accounted righteous. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done, we are justified. We are accounted righteous 
in him. Our righteousness is not our own. Our righteousness is from me, declares the Lord. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord because God has done what we could not do. And because we live as citizens of the heavenly Zion, because she is our mother, therefore, that means we can walk with great confidence in the midst of this age because what is God doing in this age? He is stretching out. He is spreading abroad the tent pegs of Zion that Zion might more and more encompass the whole earth. This is why... It's in whatever it is that you do. Next Sunday, well, I should say next Sunday. I'll be on vacation for the next two weeks. But the next Sunday morning when I'm preaching, we'll be on the fourth commandment. Where we'll be talking about, six days shall you labor. Our six-day labor is, a, is what God calls us to do. Our six-day labors are the, the work that God gives us. In the work that God gives you, you are called to live as citizens of the heavenly Zion. This is why we live before God, before the watching world, living not for what our boss thinks of us, not for what our work co-workers thinks of us. We live because we see what God thinks of us. And what He thinks of us is what matters more to us than anything else. And that is, as we live before God, we trust that His kingdom will come because that's what he's doing. And we trust that in our, in our six-day labors, we are his... You know, no weapon fashioned against us shall, shall succeed. We will confute every tongue that rises against us in judgment because this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and our vindication from the Lord himself. So let us pray. Oh Lord our God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us and, and help us because... Because we have too often lived like your servant Israel and we have not seen what you are doing and we have not heard what you are saying. Have mercy upon us and forgive us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might love you and love one another as you have called us. Have mercy upon us for Jesus' sake and and may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your spirit be at work in our midst that we, we might more and more live as those who belong to Jesus. And may your gospel go forth with great power in this place and indeed throughout all the nations of the earth, that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be exalted in our lives and in the lives of those around us. May we reflect the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the holiness of your Son, that we might more and more shine forth in the midst of the darkness, that those around us might see in us and hear from us the glorious gospel of Jesus. May your spirit open their ears and open their eyes to see, to hear, to know that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, our Father. And Father, we pray for all those who are afflicted, for all those who are struggling, for all those who do not see your comfort. And we ask, Lord, that you would have mercy upon them for Jesus' sake, that you would shine the light of your countenance upon them and grant to them your peace. Lord, have mercy and strengthen those who are tempted, who are dealing with with temptations and trials of various kinds, that, that you would grant them the grace, the mercy, the wisdom, the strength to hold fast to Jesus and to not turn aside to paths of folly. 
Lord, have mercy upon those who are straying and draw them back by your word and by your spirit. Lord, have mercy upon those who are grieving and give to them comfort and mercy and grace. Lord, have mercy upon those who, who face difficult relationships. And we pray, Lord, that you would give to them the wisdom to keep their eyes fixed upon Jesus, trusting you and loving you and loving even those who are difficult. Lord, have mercy upon us. And grant that as we walk through the, this veil of tears, as we walk through even the valley of the shadow of death, grant that we might fear no evil because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. We thank you for this table that you have spread before us in the presence of our enemies. And we ask that you would feed and nourish us and strengthen us, that our cup might indeed overflow because you provide for us all the days of our lives. So grant that we might dwell in your house forever. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.